0: Hi, my name is Marty Newmyer. I'm the author of eight books on branding and innovation, and you're watching Behind the Brand with Brian Elliott.
1: I mean, we were just sitting back, you know, <laughs> chopping it up, reminiscing about the good old days and all that, you know, tracking my roots, where I came from and where I'm going.
2: Hi, I'm Brian Elliott, welcome to another edition of Behind the Brand. Today I'm here with bestselling author Marty Newmyer. Marty, welcome to the show. Thanks, Brian.
0: I usually ask my guests, how'd you get this job? <laughs> it's a long story. I was born in Burbank, California. You probably don't want me to go back that far.
2: Well, actually, I don't mind. Let's go back in the chronology as far as you want to go for, for relevance. Uh, and I'm also curious, and uh, I usually ask, um, what do you want to be when you,
0: when you grow up? When, you, you know, when you're a
2: kid, it's a good start. what were you thinking
0: about? Uh, I decided what I wanted to do when I was seven. So it became pretty easy after that. I didn't have to worry about that part. I just had to worry about how I was going to get where I wanted to go. Um, You know, when you're in uh, second grade or something, you you know, the whole class gets asked the the question, what do you want to be when you grow up? And um, some kids will say, like little boys will say, I want to be a fire truck (laughs) or whatever it is. I want to be a nurse. Uh, I said, I want to be a commercial artist. And everyone went, what's that? Uh, And... You know not too many kids would even know that's a, an option. But my mother went to art school, so I learned how to draw from her. Um, she knew how to keep us busy on rainy days and taught us how to draw. And... so you knew uh, what a commercial artist I was knew what it was you were being groomed from an early age? and i and I could draw a little bit. and so, um you know, at that age, if you show some talent at anything, you get known for it really quickly. And so I became, uh, Marty, oh, you know, the artist, right? Yeah. And i bring little drawings into class and things like that. And then I thought, well, that's what I am. So that's my identity, and I'm going to go for it. And, the, you know, from 7 years old to whatever it was, 18, when I went to art school, that was so clear to me that's what I was going to work on. So um, it was hard for me to pay attention to anything that didn't contribute to that goal. Makes sense. I mean... Yeah. Wonderful, though, to have that clear path. Yes and no. I mean, you know, I don't know if it's good, but it definitely was my path. So uh, you did the elementary school, middle school, high school, went to college, got your art degree, I would assume. I went to Art Center College in Los Angeles, which was amazing. And uh, I dropped out because it was the 60s, and that's what you did. Uh, which was, you know, so so I had a period of maybe four years of floundering around, <laughs> you know, trying to get my bearings and be a, a, what then was called a graphic designer. Okay. So uh, things changed between being a commercial artist and, you know, and then in the sixties it was graphic designer, um, and uh, you know, got out there and just found some clients and did advertising and trademark design and all the stuff you can do and. Um, became what I was hoping to become. I'm having these visions of Mad Men, the the TV series, <laughs> yeah.
2: and you toiling away. Maybe you have one of these stand up desks. And it's a, yeah. at an angle. The beginning, I did, yeah. But and so, uh, yeah. doing making your pitches and
0: kind of. It was after the Mad Men days. You know, Mad Men was that was the days when you had three martini lunches and everything was about getting the client and making the pitch. Uh, my life was not so much about that. It was about doing really good work and then... Um, it, was, it was hand try- sketching, right? It was graphic design well, by Well, uh, there was a lot of handwork in those days. You did a lot with your hands. It wasn't on a computer, there's no computers. Yeah, I just want to give maybe the younger people who are watching
2: some context that it wasn't just like, you know, control, alt, print, you know, it was like,
0: you put some well, you hours had, in there probably. You had something called rub down type. And so this was like for headlines in ads you would get these translucent sheets of paper, and I don't know, they cost $5 or something. You had all, all these alphabets on them, and you'd place them over a sheet, and you'd rub the type off of that and peel it up, and there would be a letter. That's your font. That is your font, and, and you would, like, maybe do the whole headline with that. Yeah. And how many fonts did you have to choose from? Was it oh, a big array? Oh, maybe that... not as much as now, but yeah. probably a couple dozen good ones, you know. Yeah. So yeah, a gothic. But era. that's the kind of stuff you'd be doing a lot of handwork, uh, which was you know time-consuming and silly. Uh, so computer really helped that. But also, I think in those days when you were drawing more, um, your compositions would be better because you took more time. You're thinking, you're using your hand and your brain together mm-hmm. uh, to make things look beautiful. Um, now it's a bit different, um, but I'm seeing a lot of really good work coming out today too. So. The one thing that the computer did was teach everybody about typography like five times as fast. Typography is a very – at the time, nobody even knew what uh, the word font meant right that was it, the public didn't know what that was in fact designers didn't use that word font they used typeface so you learn your typefaces you learn um, what characters look good together, what sizes work and it's all very fiddly uh, sensitive stuff and you really need to train your brain It took me maybe ten years to get to be expert at typography and now people can learn it in a couple of years because uh, they can try so many things so quickly and if they're uh, if they have good guidance, good mentoring, they can learn how to make beautiful typography very quickly. In the old days, you have to pay for every bit of type that you bought for your client, so it could be, you know, thirty dollars for a little paragraph, and if it didn't look good, you had to pay it again.
2: Yeah, it's like licensing licensing music, right?
0: Yeah, that's right. So um, much easier now. Uh, you know, things things change though, and a lot of the, uh, of the talents that um, that I had would be probably better used today, uh, working in, oh, I would say, uh, web design, maybe, or or maybe maybe video. Video with a lot of graphics in it. That would be probably what I would be doing today.
2: Let me ask you a little bit more about typography, because it's so interesting to me. It's, it is an art form. Um, and probably, you know, as I kind of dream back into the different eras, some typefaces are very distinctive, right? Like, you know, um, 20s, 30s, 40s. Every period sort of has its typeface, right?
0: In, in, in yeah, they, there are styles that you, you, so stylistic periods you go through, but in 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 most typography, it hasn't really changed since the Renaissance. Interesting. I mean, if you open a novel, it'll probably be set in Garamond or something, which was probably 1600s, something like that. Uh, but in the 1500s is when most of the reader typefaces that we like to read were invented. And, and we're I'm still d- using them today. Nothing has changed. Yeah, and I'm thinking about ads, billboards. Yeah, headlines and, yes. Books, yeah. magazines. There's always a fashion to that.
2: So along those lines, because I know a lot of people watching, they're, they're either you know, managing a brand or maybe they're helping. They're on the design team.
1: Mm.
2: Talk to us about what design, what what do we get wrong – about mm. choosing the right typeface, the right font mm. um, for our brand. How do, we, how do we figure that out?
0: Well, work with good people. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, be humble about it. How do they know? Um, I think it's something you start learning when you're in school, if you go to a good school, and uh, it takes uh, a real eye for it. Is it about symmetry? Is it about – what is it about? It's about restraint. It's like good acting, right? I mean, good acting – is so subtle, it doesn't look like acting. Typography is the same way. It shouldn't get in front of the message. It shouldn't be between you and the message. You shouldn't look at it and go, wow, I love that typeface. That's really cool. It should just be, oh, I get it. Or, oh, hey, I'm excited about that information. So anything that gets in the, in between you and the the outcome that the designer wanted is a problem. So it's usually restraint. So uh, that's hard to learn because it's, it's really easy to say, Ooh, I want a feeling of a fiesta on this headline. Yeah, no, resist that. Res- totally. Resist it. Yeah, go I want very more understated. understated. More confetti. Yeah, that's no, not about the typeface. You cannot use typography to be a flamboyantly creative. It's not a good idea unless that's the whole idea of whatever it is you're doing. So let me cite a
2: recent example of maybe an example of this. Um, yeah. uh, we recently lost Kobe Bryant. Uh, Win and Kennedy did an amazing tribute just this last week in this Nike ad, which was very, very understated. No graphics, all audio. Did you see it? You'll always be that kid from Philly. Tanti amici lo conoscevano, ci hanno giocato,
0: poi lui si sentiva molto di
1: From Lower Marion High School in
0: Pennsylvania. But this kid right here, mark my words, is going to be unbelievable. 4 o'clock in the
1: morning, 5 o'clock in the morning, taking 500 shots. How good is this kid the Lakers on the 2000 NBA Back-to-back titles for the Los Angeles Lakers, a three-peat and a sweep. Your fourth NBA championship. The LA Lakers, the 2010 NBA champions.
0: And that was the first time I knew of your greatness. You would think about what should I do to motivate this guy, this guy, this guy.
1: 81-point game. States of America falls
0: down and he is hurting, but the Lakers eat him at the free throw line. Got it.
1: A 60 point game. What an exit for number 24.
0: And the Oscar goes to Dear Basketball. Tienes que trabajar cada día para ese sueño.
1: He didn't just show up at games. He was deeply involved in that.
0: Coaching young kids is the most important thing we can do. You couldn't have written this! Being small and having a lot of space around it, it seems momentous, right? Yeah. It seems very important. That's something that a lot of people don't get. White space makes things important. It makes things serious. Uh, it also makes them friendlier. Putting more on a page or on a screen does not help, usually. Yeah, usually it makes sure. it worse. Yeah, because there's there's nothing else to focus on, just the words. Yeah, it's just that, and it just seems so important. So a lot of that... Um, Got sort of figured out in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, where the people, really good designers would use understatement, a lot of understatement, a lot of white space, and it just blew people away. So do you think most design, then, just going the other
2: side, is, is too garish? right
0: now. Yeah. yeah. It's always too garish. Yeah, most design is too much. Uh, it's not organized well. It's not thoughtful. It's not restrained. Um, it looks messy. You know, that's the worst thing is messiness. Messiness, um, unless that's your whole idea is to be messy. Uh, it's not good. How about color? How much does color influence? That's a good question. A lot of people think color is super important for design. Um, It can be, but color is very um, personal to people. Like you can't just say, oh, red is going to be the best thing for this. Well, some people like red. Some people hate red. So, you know, it has has its place, but I would say it takes a backseat to um, form. The form of something, the shape of things, is way more powerful than color. And uh, so, what do you mean by the shape of things? Uh, well, the, the shape determines what it is. Like a, a letter, the letter B, right? So, um, how do I know that's a letter B? Because it has a form that I recognize. It has a line into half circles. Gotcha. Uh, that goes right into our brains. Whether that B is in red or yellow or blue or some, you know, gray. Hardly matters to um, our understanding of it. It may affect the emotion we feel, but um, controlling that for a whole audience is difficult. And I I learned this from testing designs with audiences. So I was one of the few designers in my generation to actually test things. And this happened when I was doing a lot of um, packaging. I was doing packaging for software packaging. Software products um, in the uh, in the '90s, uh, and Apple was one of my clients, and we had a big job of redoing all their software packaging. So very important to them, and they they wanted to get this right.
2: Oh well, yeah, and when you bring up Apple, I can't think of anyone who was more attention to detail on fonts than Steve Jobs, yeah. right? Steve
0: Jobs got, had that calligraphy class when he was going to college, and it like stuck with him. Um, I have lots of stories about Steve Jobs and typography, but uh, we we won't go there now. But, yeah, I mean, it's important to them. This was a period when Steve Jobs was out of Apple. He was in exile. um, And they were struggling with, what is Apple? We're not doing really well anymore. Um, We don't know who our audience is. We don't know what our place is in the world. And we think that we need to be more corporate because we're losing – out to companies like Microsoft who are selling tons of software to corporations. We need to be look a little more serious. And so they had done a lot of packaging uh, packages uh, for their software that looked corporate and not in a good way. And it wasn't working. So uh, we got the job to redo it all, 15 products. So it was really important to them. It was all their product line. So they said, um, whatever we do, we need to test this. We can't just like take a guess. We're, we're not going to go with your gut feeling. Or we're not going to go with our gut feeling. I said, great, this is super. So we put in a budget for testing. Would you do focus groups then? No, you know, people say focus groups a lot when they think testing. Um, this is something to really be careful of. Focus groups are a bunch of people sitting around a round table uh, where they get to express their opinions. And it's not a good venue for um, deciding what's good in, you know, in the marketplace. Because what happens is, uh, first of all, they're not experts. Second of all, they don't even know their own minds. They usually don't know what they really think or how they actually behave when they're shopping. Right, and they may be just telling you what they think you want to hear. Exactly. They want to be, you know, uh, critics. And and what happens is one person at each table, every time you do one of these, um, will take over the conversation, and that'll be the answer for the whole group. And it'll be different from each Each one will be different. She's the lead juror. So yeah. here's the secret about focus groups. They were designed to focus the research. That's all. If you don't know what to research, you get a focus group together to find out what to focus on. It's not a, it's not a way to judge work uh, before it goes into the marketplace. If you want to do that, you have to judge it in a, what we call a, a near-life situation. <laughs> so It would be like, um, in, a, like in, our, in our case, in a store on a shelf with actual customers shopping for that sort of product. Like experiential experiential testing. You're doing it. Right. And so what you do is you take um, you get two or three different uh, options and you put them on a shelf. They look like they're finished. Uh, They're in a situation uh, exactly like the one where customers are going to experience it. So, uh, and then you talk to them and you never ever ask them which one do you like. That like, is, you're right back in the focus group syndrome. You say, which one did you see first? Good, right? Because there's competition on, there's a lot of clutter in the in the star uh, which one did you see first why do you think you saw that well because the bright yellow just popped out well this one's yellow too why didn't you see that oh yeah it's not that it's because of the yellow and the blue together they look great and mm-hmm. and then okay so that one that you that you like what do you think that does was it for and if they can't figure that out really quickly you've got a problem right Um, So you you have questions like that, and if you ask 20, 30 people and you start getting the same answers, it gets through to you, right? So what what we would do, like with Apple, is we'd go to the store, talk to a bunch of people and have our clients hanging around pretending to be shopping and listening, and we'd be taking notes too. Um, And at the end of that session, we would know really clearly what we had to do, and once we learned how to do that for Apple and other companies, um, we were able to increase sales by three to five times over the previous packaging just by, you know, paying attention to the right things and then asking people, like yeah. talking to them. Um, huge. And, and I learned a lot about typography uh, in the real world uh, f- from that setting, too. I'll give you one example. Kodak. Uh, was in desperate shapes. You know, they're just about gone now. But they knew that their future was not in film. They knew it. They just couldn't get out of that. You know, I mean, they're making money at it. So, it's a, But they did start doing um, digital imaging, and we got the job to do all their software packaging. And they were like Apple, saying, look, this is really important. We need to get everything right, including, you know, typefaces and imagery and all that, because it's do or die for us. And I said, Right. So let's, let's just take this slowly. And um, so we'd, we worked on a bunch of uh, ideas. Uh, we tested those, idea being kind of a, a, a graphic that would get your attention and express something about the software. And we got down to where the, we knew which image was going to work. But um, they said, it's, it's the logo, the, of the, the, the way we treat the name of the product. How do we know that that typeface is going to be the best typeface, like in a sales situation? I said, you know, that's, that's getting pretty nitpicky, but let's, let's look into that. So, Well, so
2: th- let me just pause and ask you, had that logo been in existence?
0: It was like a 100-year-old company, right? Well, the logo in this case, um, I'm using logo in its original meaning, which is a logo type. It's a, um, a product or a company's name that's done in typography and not as a symbol. Not the mark. Not the mark. It's just type, logo type. Logo is Greek for word. Yep. So um, it's just a type. We're just taking the name of the product and making it, you know, choosing a typeface, right? That's all. That's all we were doing. But they wanted to make sure it was completely correct and was going to really work in the marketplace. And I applaud that. So we said, I, I said, why don't we just start with a very simple test? We'll do the same package and we'll have um, the name of the product in... Times Roman, everybody knows Times Roman now, thanks to Steve Jobs. The serifs, the little feet, right? (laughs) Uh, And we'll do one in Helvetica bold, right? So no serifs, very modern, machine like. Easy to read. Complete opposites, right? Both easy to read. Complete opposites typographically. And we tested those, and um, this is where I got my sort of come to Jesus moment. Talk to a lot of people, and we'd show them those two packages, and said, "Which one do you, did you notice the same routine? Like, which one um, feels right to you?" And they, we had people like saying, "I don't see the difference." Huh. And we're talking about the name of the product being, I don't know, an inch and a half high. Like big, Sig- big on the back. significant difference, so, yeah. yeah. and really different typefaces. Yeah. Um, None of the nuances that we typographers and designers care about, like subtle differences between Garamond and, you know, uh, Times and uh, Bodoni and all these other typefaces. Uh, Just like the most contrast you could get. And people would look at the packages and go, I I don't see any difference. And then I say, okay, I'm going to put them right next to each other here. Okay, now which one? I don't see any difference. Okay, look at the... Name of the product, yeah, it's the same. Look at the typeface, look at the font new word in in the in the, in the culture. look at the font, oh, oh, a person would say this one has uh, this one has little feet on it, like that was a big revelation to people, and I'm just thinking, why did I go to art school? you know <laughs> it's like if if the typeface hardly matters to people, they're like looking straight through it. They're not even seeing the yeah. typeface. Um, why are we caring so much about this? So all they want is the name of it. They're trying to get information from it because, this, you know, they have to make a decision.
2: Um, Just the facts, ma'am.
0: Yeah, and so that was like a wake-up call for me uh, in, in uh, you know, really trying to learn what people care about as far as graphics and how they understand um, communication, you know, print communication. Uh, because we all thought it was all about nuance, and obviously we were wrong. There's important stuff to care about, but that the differences in typefaces is probably not the, the main thing.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's like a Maslow's hierarchy of needs yeah, kind of thing.
0: Like Typography, not at the top. Yeah, I, I just want to know <laughs> what it what is. Am I lo- what am I looking what at? What does it do? What am I responding to? Um, and we we are, as designers, we were never taught to go back to first principles like, What's the psychology of understanding print communication? I and mean, what do people have to what are they going through? What's important, what's not important? Uh, what sells? What the, you know all that stuff? Uh, I had to kind of relearn. So I was probably forty years old at this point, you know, been been in doing this for uh, 20 years uh, and and decided just to kind of look at it fresh and and, and relearn all this stuff. And in doing that, I got a lot of great insights into uh, design. I started a magazine called Critique, and we started looking at things more objectively for designers. Um, And we did that for five years. We put out a premium magazine called Critique. And uh, at that stage, after five years of that, um, a big shift happened in the uh, economy, and everything collapsed for me and a lot of people around me. So we had the dot-com bust, we had 9-11 and a recession in rapid order, and, you know, I lost two companies, a magazine and a design company, and had to reinvent myself. Um, And that's when I started thinking about, you know, I've been addressing designers a lot, trying to help them understand business, and it's been rough. Um, They resist, right? They want to be artists. Um, so I decided to just do sort of George Costanza. I'll do the opposite. I will not talk, about, talk to designers. I'll talk to business people about design. And that worked. That worked beautifully. So I wrote a book called The Brand Gap, and that was the beginning of what I'm doing now. So I, I wrote that book about um, the, 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 the gulf between what companies think they're doing and what customers think they're doing, right? And that's a big gap, and companies can fall into that gap and die. So it was about uh, how do you get your strategy and customer experience to match up, to link up, so that you're actually doing what you say you're doing and everyone understands you because it makes a huge difference in how you're perceived and how successful you are. So uh, that became the start of the eight books that I've written so far, and that will continue. So you wrote this book. You literally wrote the book on brand. Uh, I have a lot of brand
2: questions. The show is called Behind the Brand. Mm. So... um, The whole intention was to pull back the curtain and kind of reveal um, the people, the strategies, the ideas, um, and the execution behind some of these um, iconic brands and people who, in my opinion, are brands. um, Personal branding has become a big thing, especially in the last few years. Uh, It wasn't that big when we first started the show. what I want to know is, first, can you break down the definition of what branding is, a brand is? I want to talk about marketing and advertising. Let's start with brand first. How do you define what a brand is?
0: This is important. This is where people go wrong. Right away, they, they misunderstand what a brand is here in the, uh, in the 21st century. Um, it's more than a logo. See, this is what people don't get. They think of you know a brand as something you stick on. Like like branding a cow or something, and we did start there, you know ten thousand years ago, uh, but now a brand is much more, so the way I define it is a brand is a person's gut feeling about a product, service, or company, and I'm choosing all those words carefully, so it's a gut feeling because we don't make our purchase decisions in a logical way, it's, even though we think we do, mostly it's we use intuition. We use uh, our emotions come into play. Uh, we try to be as logical as we can, but it's a gut feeling, and we don't understand everything about the products that we're buying. We're just going with our gut. Um, oh, well, so built into that sounds like there's an assumption
2: of an awareness. Yeah, so you well, have to. has s- to be. Yeah. So you have to see. There's anything. no brand without awareness.
0: Right. Yes. So you have to see the ad. Basically, if, if the product, you have to hear the name. Those are all touch points. We call touch points. Any way you come into contact with the brand uh, is uh, part of your understanding, part of your gut feeling about that product. And that can be negative or positive. It can be negative. Yeah. Um, it can go from positive to negative. <laughs> yeah. So, you, I mean, you know, Warren Buffett said it takes, you know, 20 years to build a reputation and five minutes to lose it. That applies to branding too. You, can, you live by the brand, but you can die by the brand. So if you um, do something pretty horrible, some company behavior that, that goes viral, and I mean, you can, you can lose millions, maybe billions of dollars of brand value, which is this uh, sort of imaginary number, but it's definitely, um, it's, it's something. It's a number, maybe you can't understand it, but it's really important to the company. Well, you started telling the Apple story, so now I'm
2: just Mm -hmm. replaying that Apple movie in my mind where they started, you know, where Steve and Waz. Waz was very focused on Apple II, and that was everything. And then Mm -hmm. Steve left, and um, they had a really hard time branding themselves as the computer for students or young people or Mm -hmm. a computer on every desk, whatever they were trying to do. Mm -hmm. Um, And it wasn't until Steve came back that he sort of rebranded.
0: Well, I think they had something more than that, uh, even in the beginning, which was, um, this is the computer for the rest of us. That was the idea. So they were posi- this really smart, uh, helped by their a- advertising agency, Chiat Day, in figuring this out. Um, they-, they-, they found an enemy. It was IBM? IBM. Yeah. So IBM is, um, you know, there were people at IBM that said, we- there's probably only need for five computers in the world. And of course, nobody can really use those except for the sort of high high priests yeah. of uh, of the computing world. Well, these are white guys. Let's face it yeah, white, white shirts, red white ties, coats. yeah, yeah, um, blue coats under that. But you know, because they're IBM. Um, so you had this very corporate idea of what a computer was, and they're saying, no, everyone should have one of these. And so you had the 1984 commercial where the woman runs up and and throws a hammer into the screen, and Big Brother iconic breaks into shards. Um, Brilliant. Positioning, great. So that's a great start for a brand. And, and they just went with that. Now, then they had problems like figuring out, well, which way should we go with this? Should it be the Macintosh? Should it be the Apple II? Should it be students? I mean, they had to figure all that out. Is it for businesses? Is it just for personal use? So that's not branding, though.
2: And you tell me what you think. To me, that sounds like segmentation.
0: Well, they're struggling with the brand because they're trying to figure out what they're um, – Who's their position is. Who's it for? Who's the audience? And of course, th- they can't know all that in the beginning. They have to figure that out. But they knew, they got the big thing right, which is our purpose is to bring computing to everyone. Huge. Nobody else had that. So um, uh, mostly did they did a great job. Uh, they paid attention to um, the quality of all the communications they put out. They paid attention to the quality of the products. Um, they had Steve Jobs who was um, who could be the spokesperson and was willing to do it and did a pretty good job um, and kind of created a religion around it, really. Well,
2: so let's pause there because I have questions about that. Um, if you are an outspoken founder or face of the company, I think of someone like Richard Branson and Virgin or Steve Jobs right. or um, even someone like Mark Cuban who... Owns the Mavs, you know. He's sort of the face of the Mavs, right? He's out in front.
1: Yeah.
2: How do you make that decision, whether or not you should have a mark, a logo mark? <laughs> yeah. um, you should have Branson's face front and center. Well, it's Not either or,
0: but I think if you have a founder, and I think it works especially well with a founder rather than um, a corporate CEO. That's you know, who's been hired to come into a company later. It could happen that way too. But if you still have a founder and um, the founder is fairly charismatic uh, and likes to do this kind of work. It can be really powerful. So then you've got a situation where you have a two-level brand because you have the company brand, more than two levels. Cause you have a company brand, you have product brands, and at the top you have the CEO brand. Um, that's – actually a new thing to try to control what that brand is. So that's something I'm involved in now. So I'm the director of CEO branding at Liquid Agency. So we're just sort of banging through all the options and like, how do you how do you make that work uh, for CEOs? What has to happen? What's, what's the process? What's the framework for something like that? Because most of the star CEOs are winging it yeah. But they need to be careful because um they represent the brand not just themselves. So those the CEO brand and the company brand have to connect. Yeah, well Elon Musk comes to mind. Yes, he comes to mind. He's made a few mistakes.
2: Yeah, let's talk about that. <laughs> so, and you know, are are we judging the mistakes based on the when the stock price just falls? Well,
0: that's that's major. Okay yeah he says things that he he doesn't realize how important they are yeah. or he goes on Joe Rogan
2: and you know smokes a joint or something or
0: yeah so that's all um reflects on the company brand as well as his own brand so now he's got that problem to deal with how do i make those things work together uh and if there's no um framework for that uh it's it could be a problem it could end up causing a lot of problems so i think that's a new area that um is going to start forming up It's like that understanding of what a ceo brand is Because you need to have CEOs need to be real people too. They have to be authentic. Maybe they do have to light up a joint.
2: Yeah. Well, let's stay on Elon for a second. So, you know, Elon's involved in three different businesses. uh, Generally speaking, I'm sure he has many others. But Mm. he has the whole um, uh, Solar City. You know, he's got Tesla, Mm -hmm. and then he's got his SpaceX company. Uh, He's got the battery company too. But maybe that's part of Tesla. Yeah, well, I think that's part of Solar City. Somehow, I think yeah. his evil plan is um, to give the hardware away and then become yeah. the be. new supplier of electricity for the world. Everyone. Yeah, yeah. Um, but is he? So, is he, what is he doing right?
0: Um, he's enthusiastically um, presenting the company to the world. Yeah. You know, he's taking he's taking the risks, and he's out there um, unabashed. Yeah, unabashed, and so he comes off as authentic. So yeah. that's really important. So he's got that. Um, sometimes he's just a bit too uh, um, brash, loose, yeah. uh, with you know, careless. Let's say with with his reputation. But um, I think he'll learn. But couldn't you argue then, like say, like you know? Tesla
2: owners, of course, it's now valued, the number one yeah. valued car company in the
0: world, which is amazing. Well, the Germans are, like, thinking they're, they're having this eg- existential moment. They're realizing, like, if, if they don't do something, they're going to lose their monopoly on car manufacturing. Yeah, I mean, everything is – it's like wet sand under the feet,
2: right? But yeah. Um, yeah. I guess where I was going with this is here's this guy who is unabashedly – You know, out there on Twitter saying stuff he shouldn't, you know, having these uh, personal relationships, romantic relationships. uh, He does basically whatever he wants. Mm. Uh, This rogue mentality appeals to these early adopters who have bought Tesla. I think it does. I think it'll serve him well in the beginning. And it's kind of this idea of this, you know, I would rather have a a 100 people who would fall on their sword for me than a million people that would do nothing mentality right mm-hmm. where and that's he's building the brand around this same kind of almost apple-esque sort of rogue
0: rabid community. totally of totally apple-esque loyal followers right mm-hmm. that's it yeah. so i would say mostly he's doing things well um i'd love what i would if he were sitting here in front of me I'd say well, would you like to do them a little bit better <laughs> what can we do to improve your yeah. uh, batting average uh, because you've got the basics. You've got the basic skills, the basic, basic impulses. Yeah. you got the vision. Um, how can we make that? How can we bump that up like five times, ten times? But, you know, in bowling they have those little railings you put up for your eight-year-old. Yeah, yeah we need those for him.
2: But can? But, but would he allow those to go up? I mean, would that ruin uh, his brand?
0: I don't know. I'll Speculate uh, a little bit. Um could, yeah. Well, Depends you... where you put those uh, those guardrails. If I mean, you put them in too tight, yeah, it becomes boring and uh, – People sense when someone is being real and when they're not. And yeah. that's very important to uh, a founder brand is you have to be real. Would you censor him and just say, just quit spouting off about, you know, things that are so polarizing? I mean, what mm. is it? And is it like – I think we would have long talks yeah. about it um, because, no, you don't want to censor someone because it it's, it shows. Right. right. It shows that they're being too careful. Yeah. But maybe it's more like you have to be um, – able to bounce back from something that you say. You have to be able to correct for it in a way that makes it even better. Sometimes making mistakes is your best road to being successful. Right. So, uh, so let's
2: stay on that, because I love talking about Elon and, uh, and Tesla. So did you see the cyber truck launch? Did you see any of that? No, I didn't see that. Okay, so here's what
1: happened. Are you sure? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh my God. Well, maybe that was a little too hard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Should we try the door? Sorry. It didn't go through. Let's so that's a, that's a plus side. Let's try the right. right.
2: One. Try yeah. that one. Really? Okay. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> oh man! It didn't go through. <laughs> All right.
1: <laughs> yeah, not bad.
0: Room for improvement. <laughs>
2: The Cybertruck is the ugliest design thing you've ever seen. And many people made fun of it for like being something you'd like some high schooler would design in some like old Quark Express-esque kind of uh, software program. It's just like the ugliest thing you've ever seen.
0: Really bad uh, CG.
2: (laughs) Yeah, it was terrible. Uh, The design is interesting, but it's, it's very awkward, bulky, and not attractive at all. Is that on purpose? That's the question. So is Elon a genius because that was done deliberately to sort of really polarize people um, or was it just like I'm doing – so when I was at the studios, I heard anecdotally the story about SpongeBob SquarePants. Do you know the cartoon?
0: I've seen it but I don't know the story you're talking about. As the
2: story goes, um, some of the production people and artists were saying, you know what? Kids will watch just about anything, that's, if it's a cartoon. They could watch a sponge. They would watch a sponge. that talk, And so they designed it and launched this incredibly <coughs> successful franchise, SpongeBob SquarePants, on that premise.
0: At least that's the lore. Right. But the premise isn't the reason it's successful. That just happened to be how they got to it. Right. What's successful is it's just so surprising. Yes. Right? It's so odd that it stands out. So – you're onto something super important with the truck. As I haven't seen it, but I can tell you from, you know, okay. So, 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 think about it like this. I think more people are are familiar with the Prius. Yes. Also, which, very ugly. Yeah, but not as ugly as it was. And definitely not as ugly as the Cybertruck. Right. However, it didn't start being ugly. It started looking like a Corolla or something. Like the first uh, iteration of a Prius was really. Ordinary and boring. Like you carved a potato up, or maybe a bar of soap. It was. It was simple. Um, the lines. problem is, is you're trying to say that this car that looks like every other car you've seen is special, right? So you don't want that. You want something that's really different. And I would say that if it's super different, maybe it needs to be a bit, bit ugly, um, or at least challenging to your tastes, right? And then people will say, "Ooh, that's weird." Um, why is it like that? And then you have the opening to say it's like that because it has to be, right. Right? <laughs> It has to be like that. Uh, and then people go, oh, oh, because oh, yeah, it's hybrid and maybe I don't know something to do with aerodynamics. Who knows? They don't. It doesn't matter. Right. The main thing is is they see something that stands out and they connect it with something good, and then that ugliness turns into beauty in a in a kind of weird way. Is it like the concept of anchoring? You know,
2: like you something's established and you know it relative to everything else yeah, yeah it could even be a price
0: you know um, if the price yeah, is the same it's 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 more just it's branding is all about um differentiation like it's built on differentiation if you don't have something different to offer who cares it doesn't matter if it looks like everything else or it acts like everything else then the only way you can win is on price really and that's, that's just, uh, you know, you're just competing away your profits with other companies. You want to be completely unique and win on that basis. Mm-hmm. Like, we're unique. Now judge us based on what we are, what we want to be, not on, you know, but other people. So he launched the Cybertruck. And then during
2: the whole launch, which is the ta-da moment, mm. he touted the fact that these windows were virtually indestructible oh. and had his designer friend throw a steel ball, which they had previously determined, you know, uh, was not going to break the window yeah. and because of physics or whatever. Yeah. He hucks this thing at the window and it shatters. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, you talked about uh, yeah. CEOs being able to react well. Yeah. Uh, Elon, he didn't miss a beat. He's like, oh, well, we're going to have to fix that and, te- you know, we have to test that again. Either. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but it's sort of a classic moment and you don't know, exactly whether it was rehearsed that way it doesn't seem like it
0: people don't like perfection and um, they love um, to see elite athletes great products you know they love high quality things but they don't necessarily feel close to them unless there's a flaw when there's a flaw in it um, they suddenly get oh, yeah I, I really feel warm towards that person or that, that product. So there, you know, you don't want to be too perfect. You ha- you want to be like striving for perfection and make a mistake and and how you correct for that mistake or how you deal with it can make you really human, whether it's a product or a person or a company. So is that one way that brands could build trust
2: is relatability or vulnerability? Um,
0: yeah. I think if you, you know, if you had a continuum between, um, uh, Horrible, messy, ugly thing, and a perfect thing you want to be almost to the perfect, pull back a little bit. I think that's where you want to be it 's called the Pratt fall effect. It just came to me the Pratt fall effect um, when somebody who's like a dancer falls you you laugh or maybe you like feel horrified, but then you really like that person because they're striving for something perfect, and they fell short, yeah. everyone loves that so. Elon is striving to make this perfect uh, truck that can't be broken and it breaks and he goes, oops, and suddenly you like him.
2: Yeah, you know what? It uh, struck a chord with me as you were saying it that, I mean, this country at least was built on this underdog spirit.
0: Yes.
2: Right, And we love an underdog. We root for the underdog because I think we can all relate with it. We've been the underdog at one point, or we are right now. Mm. And when they're a little bit Fallible, val, you know, uh, vulnerable. We see them
0: bleed. See Superman bleed. And you go, maybe I could do that. I mean, I make mistakes. Maybe I could be that person. You know, it's that, but you also trust them a little bit more. I think. You know, mm-hmm. you, you think. Well, you trust people who are willing to show their, um, you know, fallible side. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's a very interesting um, thing to think about right now because there's. Um, so many brands competing and everyone's trying to appear perfect um, yeah there's a lot of fronting going on I a think lot of fronting yeah um, and I think as a result people really value authenticity
2: well so let's let's do the good kind of indictment let's indict those who are doing it right who who do you like because uh, I can think of a half dozen examples that we could throw under the bus right now, but we won't' we'll, let's go positive to throw under the bus yeah let's let's yeah. take the
0: high road okay. so who's
2: doing it well you think
0: Oh, brand. I think, uh, let's see. Well, you know, they, they come and go, right? They have moments when they're really doing well. Uh, I, I go back to um, the first time I saw maybe a perfect brand. Well, the first perfect brand was probably the introduction of the Volkswagen to the United States uh, before most people's times. But... Um also featured in a Mad Men episode. Was it? Well, it should be. So I vaguely remember that. Well, that was the turning point in advertising from the Mad Men days to the modern, uh, the creative era, as it was called. Um, Doyle Dane Birnbach was the advertising agency that pioneered this. And they were the first agency to pair an art director and a copywriter uh, together to do ads at the same time simultaneously to work it out as a team. Because up to this point... The writer was totally in charge so the writer would write the ad and be a lot of words because the writers hand it off to an art department who would work up work up some illustrations and ways to make that graphic and that was that was the process and um, Doyle Dane said, no, you can do w- way better work if the, the graphics and the words are happening at the same time and they're interactive and you'd create something super simple and powerful f- from doing that um, and so they had Bill Birnbach, uh, uh, one of the partners, working with Paul Rand, an outside famous, famous graphic designer who did really simple, powerful work. Those two guys would work together. And this led ultimately to um, the Volkswagen account, where it would be just a lot of white space and a little car, and then it would say lemon. <laughs> yeah. And you have to read that. And then the copy, I mean, that's how I learned to write copy, is I... I just read those, and they were so spare, so beautiful, witty, gorgeous writing. Less is more. Less is more, because you have to. Every word counts. It's poetry, basically, but it, it's poetry with a purpose. You you start with this, you th- learn some things, and at the end, you're convinced, and it's like, man. So they, you know, they took this car, this German car that was called Hitler's car, after World War II, introduced it into the U.S., and they used the Prattfall effect. They said, um, uh, it's ugly, it's cheap, um, you wouldn't want to be in an accident in it. There's no engine in the front to protect you. It's just a trunk. Right. Uh, how are we going to sell this? Uh, they sold it because it was ugly. So they just basically said, um, you know, ugliest skin deep is what they said.
2: Yeah. So. Fun, fun fact, 69 Beetle was my first car.
0: No. Yeah. Really? 69. So it was a little bit, that was with the bigger taillights. It was getting really <laughs> refined. And...
2: Oh, the bigger taillights weren't until 70,
0: so they oh, okay. were still smaller, smaller ones, okay. yeah. yeah. But bigger window, uh, 1500cc yeah. engine. You know. Hardly anything changed. It was the same car. Yeah. Right, so, so um, uh, the car itself was not an amazing piece of machinery, right? It was r- really simple, but um, it was cheap to buy and cheap to maintain, cheap to run, and you lift it up the back, and there's the engine, and everything is right there. So if you want to fix it, you can fix it yourself really easily without taking anything out to get to anything. It's all right there. That's why I bought mine. Yeah. So that was the first one. And then later, um, the next car that was introduced really well, I think, was the Mini. So that more recent. Uh, Everything about that car, including the design of the car, I think was just about perfect. And the way they they masterminded this thing. I mean, they 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 had a, they hired a great designer to do the car. Um, they had a really good up and coming agency that uh, created ad campaigns that were like none others. So they didn't do any TV advertising because that's fake, basically. That's what the other guys do. Um, all they did was uh, they pulled stunts with the car. So they would do things like they'd drive the car to a shopping mall and put it in the middle of a plaza, and then they'd put a giant trash can next to it or something that would show <laughs> the scale. Right. Like, the trash can would be way bigger than the car, and you'd yeah. see this little car in the big... Um, and there's a lot of product placement for that
2: car, like in the Italian job with... Yeah, uh, the whole movie. Mark Wahlberg, I think was that movie, you know, yeah. and they,
0: they drove it in and out of yeah. so they, small they, doors. They used sort of guerrilla advertising, yeah. which was really cool. They used billboards. Um, can I ask you about product for a second? So... Yeah.
2: Um, one of the ongoing debates, and this is what um, Seth kind of also helped me think about, um, he wrote that book, This is Marketing, mm-hmm. and one of the debates we had was, do you have a logo or do you have a brand?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And and so it's sort of been an ongoing debate. I ask people who, you know, manage or run brands what they think. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you evolve from a single product? Do you watch that show uh, Shark Tank at
0: all? I saw it once. I thought it was kind of dumb, but... My mother loved it, interestingly. That's right. She doesn't care about business at all. Popular show. It's been on for
2: like 10 years. And sort of a common thing that the sharks will say is, you don't have a company. You know, you have a product, right? And Ooh. so it's just like a single product line. They invented something. Um, and It's not a brand.
0: So that was sort of my claim to fame as I introduced that concept of um, uh, your logo isn't your brand. You have got to think way bigger than that. Your logo is a symbol for your brand, and it should bring up a lot of feelings about the brand. But well, so how
2: do you get there? So how do you know? So let's say I invented something. Um, it's it's easy to go to a, a big brand, like a Starbucks or a Nike or an Apple or you know one of these other bigger established brands. Go, oh yeah, 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 that's a brand. But like, let's say I invented something tomorrow. Yeah. Um, how do I know that I have a brand or if I just have a product?
0: Okay, so as I said, the brand exists in the minds of customers they determine what your brand is you give them the raw materials yeah. that they build the brand out of but it's their brand so i need to have some sort of awareness so it's out in the market okay well presumably you've built that product or that service with a group of customers in mind and they were involved with you somehow and if you're if you're just doing it alone in your garage then you still have to get through that step of i have to introduce this to people who might be my loyal customers and and get them on my side. But it's much easier if they're involved in creating that thing. Like yeah. you're, you're talking with them the whole time. You're trying it out with them. You're testing. And they're telling other people. And you're building your tribe. Yeah. How, do I, how do
2: I determine what my brand is? I mean, I have a lot of my own ideas. But I'd like to hear it from the godfather.
0: Uh, kiss the ring if you've got one. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. So, so um, you know, the, you do have to come up with a name for it. Um, But it starts with understanding, like, how you're different. Really, that's – your name really should be based on your idea for your difference, your your differentiation. So um, if you've built something that's a Me Too product, you're kind of dead in the water. You're just never really going to get there. You have to go back to square one. You need a product or a service that, from the get-go, is different and and serves a different audience or different needs for the same audience. Right? And if you don't have that, you don't have a place to stand. You're going to be just competing with everybody else. So you could have a great logo, great name, great packaging, great product design, whatever it is, service design. Uh, but if you're competing with other people and customers can't really see the difference between them, except for those surfacey details, how are you going to win? You're basically going to have to work twice as hard and probably lower your price. Can we case study a little bit? So um – I'm a fan of this fan of this brand, um,
2: but I think they are struggling. And let's we'll stay on the automotive category. Acura. Okay. To me, Acura is a struggling brand. I don't know who they are.
1: Yeah.
2: I don't understand what they stand for. Mm. As a marketer, as a brand guy, I think I understand what they're trying to do. Oh, they're trying to compete with Mercedes, and with Lexus, and with BMW. Um, sort of that high higher. Yeah, you know, it's
0: a luxury car, luxury car. But it's it also, a luxury car that belongs to um, a non-luxury company. Right, and it's also performance. So they even yeah. have this, you know, uh, okay. supercar called the NSX, which is like a Lamborghini or um, so a Honda Accord is the highest end of the, you know, the regular yeah. Honda line. And people say just get that, it's much less money than an accurate, and you're getting almost the same car and a lot of the same parts. Yeah. So when that kind of news gets around to people, even if it's not true, they go, "Yeah, I'm not going to pay extra. It's just a Honda." Everyone knows it. So that's interesting. You just kind of said it. You know, I'm, are you willing or not to pay extra for it?
2: Does that go into you know the brand? Because when I think about yeah. Acura and what Seth told me, do you have a logo or a brand? I think Acura has a logo.
0: Acura has just yeah, like you said, a muddled brand. It's just um, it lost its original. Meaning, it probably wasn't a very st- strong idea to begin with. Is to say, are uh, this company with cheap cars now has a more expensive one? Do you want that? Yes.
2: That's- Contrast that with BMW, which is you know drilled into our minds the ultimate driving machine. And, and Mercedes is what like nothing but the best.
0: Yeah, they're they're um, similar brands, but different enough to, to to exist in the same market because Mercedes is kind of a solid more conservative car, let's say. It's solid. It's not high performance. It's not a sports car. BMW started out being the sports car that doesn't look like a sports car. Yeah. Well,
2: it's Mercedes cool idea.
0: Mercedes started the whole thing. Like, that was the first automobile, right? I think BMW has lost its way. I think they started to lose it when they came out with a sports car that looked like a sports car. Mm-hmm. So they lost, to me, what was the unspoken unspoken truth about them was that they had sedans that looked very conservative and sedate uh that were really sports cars so like a wolf in sheep's clothing Mm -hmm. that was a pretty cool idea so you could people in the know knew that that car was hot even though it just looks like when they started making them look hot then they're like getting into porsche territory and why do that uh Mercedes started out as being kind of just the solid car, you know, I think a middle-class car in Germany, but it sort of got higher and higher class. And then they realized they're leaving out part of the market, so they started introducing cheaper versions of a Mercedes that people could afford. Instead of 60000 it's $30,000. Well, that just brings down the, brand, the whole brand when you do that. Uh, the same thing with uh, Honda Acura. They had the cheap cars and then they, they're going to add a, you know, a luxury version on top of that that they're not really disguising as a different, everyone knows it's Honda. So that's, that's, you know, it's the low end that determines the price for everything. So here's the secret about what branding is for. Branding is to get more people to buy more stuff uh, for more years at a higher price. That's what it is. If it's not doing that, uh, why are you spending all the effort and money doing it? it? Has to do those things. So it's for the long term. Uh, it's if you're having to sell by lowering your price or having a lot of sales, you've got, you got you know that's a tax on bra- bad branding. You you got to get your brand to be more unique. You, ideally, you know the ideal situation is you don't have any competitors. Nobody can touch you. You're in a class by yourself. So that's what you have to shoot for, and that takes some pretty radical engineering, and you have to be willing to. Um, really be different. And a lot of companies are really afraid of being different. Different is risk to them. But that's the secret. How different can you be? So Tesla, very different, right? Remember Elon Musk says they didn't even have a car. They had a, some drawings of a car. He said, do I think I could sell a, um, a car that doesn't use any gas during a, uh, 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 um, an energy crisis? I know the prices are really high. He goes, yeah, I think I could probably do that. Um, And, you know, and everybody went, yeah, it makes sense. Right. So he just established himself as the first all electric cool car. And um, all he had to do then is get people to say, I'll try that. I'll take a chance on that. If you don't start there, um, you're just battling everybody. It's just going to be a slog. So branding is about finding that unique, powerful position and then making that work somehow, really making it work. So MINI did that. MINI positioned the car against uh, all those SUVs. So uh, like, like you know, let's just go right back through the his history that we were talking about. Volkswagen was against the American car cars that had fins and metal and chrome and everything. It's the opposite, right? And it was a cheap price. And the, so they had that market to themselves. Mini said, "Everybody has an SUV. We're not going to do that. That's for those people, right?" They go high. We're going to yeah. go low. You're going to go low. Uh, and now we got Tesla saying, "All those gas guzzlers. We're not going to do that." So, um, and that can happen in any industry. You can do that same thing. You can disrupt it by doing the opposite of what everyone else is doing. You still have to make it work.
1: I mean, we were just sitting back, you know, <laughs> chopping it up, reminiscing about the good old days and all that. <laughs> You know, tracking my roots, where I came from, and where I'm going. But like I say, man, always said it. It's not about the destination. Nope. It's all about the journey. Ain't nothing changed but the weather the dangling carrot that hay from the rear view uh-huh. your dreams in the past ain't nowhere near you backseat drivers got nothing but two cents shotgun riders too biased they all liars i should get an a for effort i'm too tired